Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And tonight I wish to read a few verses to set up the beginning of this lesson. And we're going to read verses 36 through verse 50. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's washed my feet with her tears. Wipe them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There's a lot in that reading that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. It made Simon uncomfortable. I think the woman was uncomfortable. I think when the Lord forgave sins, people sitting around hearing what he was doing were uncomfortable. And I think sometimes there's things there that just tear us all to pieces today. Thy faith has made you whole. Well, he didn't say a single thing about baptism. and Don't get wild. I believe in it and I preach it. But what he is simply telling us in this text that when the Lord says someone is forgiven, are you going to doubt it? I never doubt it when the Lord says someone is forgiven. But what I saw one day when I was studying this, and the reason this came to me, I had baptized a young lady, and it seemed to be too easy. It seemed it took very little to get this lady ready for the waters of baptism. She had all the right answers. She said everything that we needed to hear, and she appeared to be a candidate that believed and wanted to repent. So we set the baptism up. The brethren showed up. It was just a wonderful moment. And I buried her in the water and brought her up out of the water. 
And she looked around and she said, I didn't hear any bells. I didn't see any angels. I don't feel a tingling. She said, I thought it would all be different for me when this happened. I feel the same. And because she couldn't feel what she thought she should feel, she walked out and never came back. What part does feelings have in salvation? Now here's where it's going to make you uncomfortable. It's very important. Feelings are very important. They have to be based on truth, as you're going to see. When I read this text, I thought, that lady that walked into this very sterile, unforgiving environment of Simon's home. Everybody knew that she's a sinner. Everybody knew that she was someone that out in the world you probably didn't eat with because you remember in Luke 15, the Lord ate with sinners and they condemned him for that. But there were emotions all over that house. There was shame. There was regret. There was love. There were tears. And I believe there was gratitude. There was kissing. There was weeping. There was touching. I hate to tell you all this, but I really miss the touching right now. I mean, where I'm at, a lot of times people come in, we'd hug each other up and talk to each other and, you know, just, and now we're elbow bumping and knuckle bumping and when nobody's looking, we're still probably hugging sometimes, but bottom line is it just kills me. The Lord meets the needs that we have. The Lord is the foundation for the feelings that should be generated when we become Christians. I learned a long time ago that all of my needs revolve around what I actually need from Christ. I used to think my needs were very essential based on the material, but I realize now that was not what I needed. I needed to know what real faith was. And when I learned Christ, I began to understand the power of, of a committed trust. I listened to one of the candidates this last week who may be appointed as a Supreme Court judge. And you know what this lady said? We made a commitment in our family. She said, I made a commitment to have a large family. I made a commitment to pursue this career. I made a commitment to stand by the rule of law. And I, I thought the common denominator in everything that she said was commitment. She said, I made a commitment to my faith. Even though it's not one I agree with. But she's committed to it. And it didn't appear to me that she had any uh, trepidation about making those statements. I think she'd come to grips with who she was and what she believed. Do I say that feelings only can say? No, I will tell you right up front. I got tickled thinking about this tent meeting. And my mind went way back in the past weeks thinking about what we did in some of the first meetings that I was ever in. But I remember we had a big old the first big tent meeting, and Brother J.R. Bronger was going to be preaching that night. And you know, he kind of preaches like a Pentecostal preacher. I mean, he really gets with it, you know, and he's got the look. And he was up there, he was shelling out the corn, and, and, and he was moving pretty good, you know, and we were all just like, this is going to go good. And there was a big crowd of people, and people were sitting on a balcony at the old 
old hotel there on the river out there looking and there was a lady sitting on the front seat and she had a lot of hair on top of her head and she had come because we had advertised a Pentecostal tent meeting. And about five minutes into that sermon, she suddenly stood up. This ain't no Pentecostal church meeting, tent meeting. And she stomped out of there. Because we weren't up doing what? We weren't up doing this. We weren't up yelling. We weren't up dancing jigs and falling around. I'm telling you up front, that's not what I'm talking about in this lesson. I'm not talking about feelings only because feelings only cannot be the foundation of our salvation. They're not the evidence of our salvation. Over in the book of Luke in chapter 10, when the Lord sent the 70 out, the Bible said they returned with joy. They were rejoicing when they got back. I could just imagine the ripple of excitement through them. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And that would be just like, you know, pouring oil on the fire for me. If you'd have said, look here, y'all brought Satan down. That's not exactly what he said. But he said, I saw Satan fall. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. But then very quickly he said this, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. This is not the source of your joy, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice. Why? Because there's a truth that's very important to this whole thing, that your names are written in heaven. Now, when a person knows that that's a possibility, knows that that's attainable, knows how to go and accomplish that, knows how to have a place in heaven, I believe there's got to be an expression in that person's life. Brethren, I'm going to be up front with you. We've got a whole lot of Dr. Spocks. I don't mean Dr. Spock, but Mr. Spocks in the church. Do you remember Star Trek? Do you remember how Mr. Spock did not want to face his emotions? But he had them because he was part human. And do you remember how he battled that all the time? And he wanted to be this logical, you know, computer thing? Well, I've never been that, but I have been a Joe Friday. You remember, you remember the detective back in the days, you know, and he would stand up, just the facts, ma'am. That's all I want to know, just the facts. And not a bit of emotion in that man whatsoever. And far too many times in the church, we're just like that. You know, we, we don't have the feelings. We don't sense the feelings. But what I'm going to do with you for just a little bit tonight is I'm going to show you how that feelings must be blended with knowledge as we make a journey to become a Christian, and then we'll continue in that journey till the day we go to heaven. And the first thing I want to show you is this. Before you can ever be a child of God, you have to know and you have to feel guilt. And I'm told by a lot of people today that's just so unhealthy. That's one reason many people today oppose the concept of Bible teaching. They think we are creating neurotic people because we tell them you have to face the fact that you have guilt. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I remember a man by the name of David and one of the most poignant things he said in 2 Samuel 12, he said, I have sinned. Now, I think the second he said that, he was acknowledging the knowledge that he had transgressed. He was, he was guilty 
of a lot of things, but he admitted with a simple statement, I have sinned. And I want to read you something in Psalms 32. He said this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now watch this. When I kept silent, that means before I confessed my sin, I, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My life or my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We have all sinned. When the Lord began his teaching upon this earth in, in, in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, he said, blessed are those that mourn and blessed are those that are poor in spirit. Do we know what that means? Do we realize that we have to be sad for our sin and the sin of the world? And we have to mourn for those things. Mourn for what? That by ourselves we're doomed. By ourselves we can't solve this. All our young people need to grasp this. That I'm going to show you that the Lord is ever ready to forgive the sin. But he will not forgive a sin that we just bop up there. I, I baptized a fellow the other day that was in his 80s. And he was baptized when he was a young teenager. And he said, I think I went up there with a group of other teenagers and it was a la die moment for me. He said, I knew what the truth was. But he said, my heart wasn't in it. I did it because my friends were doing it. And he said, down in the water I went, and for all these years I've raised a family, I've buried my wife, and now I realize I'm scared to death because I don't think I was baptized right. I baptized another lady. We've had a bunch of baptisms during COVID. It's not slowed us down a bit, not because of us, but people were reassessing. And they had needs and they knew the Lord was the only one that could solve the needs. This one lady came to me and she said, I've suffered an aneurysm in the brain and I've lost most of my memory. And I was told that I was baptized when I was a young person, but I can't remember it. I can't feel the joy of it. I can't feel the, the, the relief of it. I, ca I can't believe it happened. And I want that back. And I want to I do this so I can remember this and know this. What would you tell her? Well, you don't need to do it. No, I'm not going to tell her that. And we went to the water. When she come up out of there, guess what? That was one of the happiest ladies I'd seen in a long time. And she was so thankful to the Lord. And I began to think about this. God appeals to your mind. That's what faith is about. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And that word affects our mind. We have to study the word and hear the word and we have to receive the word. There's one important thing you need to know and I learned this going to school and I, I didn't realize I was learning until I got out of school and looked back and tried to think about the blessings of school. What they were doing, they weren't torturing me at school. I thought they were. I thought literally it was just a torture place. But they were trying to expose me to information that would change the way I thought in here, help me reorganize my life, help give me a sense of purpose, help give me goals. They weren't trying to manipulate me or destroy me, but in the end, I begin to characterize my life by those choices. That's what the Bible does. 
We have exposure to the Word of God, and that exposure affects our mind, and that affects our emotions. But I'll tell you what the devil does. The devil says, no, let's reverse it. Let's just, let's just affect the flesh. Let's just connect up to the flesh, and we're going to change the mind of people by the pleasures of the flesh. That's why you have a text like in Galatians 5 that talks about works of the Spirit and works of the flesh. Now, I'm going to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. If we let this world control us, we're going to reach a point in our lives, we're going to be like a fellow I knew one time. We both were coaching ball together, and I, I got up beside him, and we were in a little league game, and he's standing there, and he's all in the game, and I said, are you a Christian? You'd be amazed how that just chills the whole air for a lot of people all at once. He turned and looked at me, he said, no, I'm not one. I said, Why? He said, I don't need the guilt. And it hit me. He's right. There is no, if there is no God to you, it's because you don't want the guilt of knowing you've sinned. And that's a foolish place to be. I never did change that man's mind. What is guilt? I'm going to tell you real, just a little simple thing. Guilt is the intellectual knowledge that you have wronged someone, and especially God. You've done something that's wrong. We send a lot of people to prison that never acknowledge their guilt. They're innocent. They say they didn't do this. And some probably didn't and some did. But guilt is the knowledge that you have done something that's wrong, that's terrible. But the problem is many people don't feel the shame of that knowledge. They never have shame for what they did. And it's, un it's not until you reach that point in your spiritual relationship with the Lord you're not sitting up there trying to say, well, the Lord is just so comprehensive. He's a universal God and he'll send no one to hell. He'll destroy no one. But it's when you realize, I have transgressed his will. What is sin? Transgression of the law of God. And I am ashamed of it. You know, repentance, how can repentance be if we're not ashamed of what we've done? How can salvation be if we're not ashamed of what we've done? Is that not what Paul was trying to get across to us? And it well to the church there at Corinth. When he made this, this, this statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, he talked about why he wrote the word. He said, for if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, and I understand that. I've preached many a lesson that part of me had no mercy during the sermon. But a part of me was dying because I had to preach it. And he said, I... I, I I regret it. I perceived that the epistle made you sorry. They felt their shame, though only for a while. I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. What's the sorrow of the world? Well, you don't even acknowledge your guilt. And if you are guilty, you try to find a loophole. You try to find a way to save faith. You, you try to find a way to get out of it. Instead of facing it, dealing with it, and paying the price for it. One of the things that I think is important when you're raising children is to teach a child the value of the concept of apology. Because apology leads to the concept of repentance. One time in a meeting... There was a young elder, and I, when I say young, that guy looked so young, but he had five daughters. 
And all of the, the older girls had been through school and were out. So I know he was older than when I thought he was. But he had a little girl that came along a little bit later in life, you know, kind of a surprise child, gorgeous little thing. And I was up preaching, and there was a good crowd there, and I didn't really see her that much. But at the end of the service, Brother Terry brought that baby up to me and said, he was holding her, and she was crying. And he said, Brother Ray, said she has to apologize to you. I didn't want that. I did not want her to apologize to me because I felt so sorry for her. See, I, I wasn't being a good person at that point. But I got down on my knee and I said, why do you have to apologize? And she snubbed and cried and she said, I disturbed your sermon. And she had a little friend that was with her and she kept talking to the little friend. And then her daddy said, you did wrong, but here's how we're going to fix it. You're going to apologize to the man who was speaking and you're going to tell him you're sorry for what you did. And she bawled and cried, and I did not grab her and say it was okay. I wanted to, but I didn't. I hugged that little one. Then he took her back, and then you know what he said? He said, was that hard? That was hard, wasn't it? And said, someday, honey, you're going to reach an age where you're going to sin before the living God, and you're going to cry, and you're going to have to tell him you're sorry and mean it, or you won't go to heaven. Now, do you feel the emotions of that as well as the knowledge of it? Secondly, if we are going to make this journey, we cannot do it just academically. The Word of God is going to have to create a knowledge that we need assistance, we need help. But it also has to become a driving desire or feeling that we need help. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 7, should you like to turn over there, in verse 22, Paul was talking about a conclusion that he was making in that chapter that there is a controversy within all of us of the old man and of the new man, of the man that wants to live with the law of God and love God and serve God and the man that doesn't. And he said, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am. This is one reason many people do not want to deal with this because it can create a really terrible outlook on ourselves. O wretched man, O wretched man that I am. You see. And he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now I want to ask you a question. Did you get through the day without sinning? Don't hold your hand up. Let me ask another question. What was your last sin? You know, you ask some people that and they'd be sitting there going, well, I don't know. I mean, Sin will condemn you to hell. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me ask a third question. When you sinned, if you did today, did it sting? 
See, that's why we don't remember our sins. It didn't sting. We didn't feel it. I, I dare say we knew it. I, I personally tell the brethren at Waterview, not many of us invent new sins to commit. We all basically do the same things. We don't, we don't go out and chase new sins. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul was saying, O death, verse 55, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Now he said the sting of death is sin. Sin stings. The strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives what? What does he give? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should sin sting? Who did it kill? Who died on the cross because of our sins? The Lord Jesus Christ, the best man that ever lived, died because I lied or anything else I might have done in my life that was sinful. And I can act like that sin should not hurt me when I do it. If I, was, if I knew right now that I was personally responsible for the death of a child or the death of any of you in this room, I would never forget what I did to cause that. And it should hurt you because sin not only killed Jesus even though he raised up to save us, but sin kills me. Sin is self-spiritual suicide. You know the simple verses. Wages of sin is what? Have we forgotten? It brings the shameful fruit of terrible actions into our life. And it doesn't get better, it gets worse. We destroy the guilt of it. Ignore the shame of it. You think we're ever going to want help out of it if we don't feel those things I just spoke of? Alright, I'm going to put it to you real simple. I have never lived good enough to go to heaven. To do it, I would have had to have lived perfectly like Christ. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and I am not worried about you right now, I'm worried about me. I don't want justice from God. I want mercy. Next time a state trooper pulls you over, you snickered about the ones that pulled me over, but my heart gets in my chest when one pulls me over. Roll that window down, the police officer walks up, and you look at him and smile and say, whatever you do, sir, I want justice. And you knew you were speeding. You really want justice? You want mercy. And that's exactly what I learned in Scripture, that part of the great message of the gospel, and let's go back to Acts 2 for just a minute, was very, very simple that when Paul preached to put conviction in the hearts of the Jews that, not Paul, Peter, put conviction in the hearts of the Jews that killed Jesus, 
He was trying to reach that point. He could show them, no matter what you did, there's help. There's an opportunity for help. And you must know it, and you must have a desire for it. Because what he said to them was, there in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God made this Jesus, <coughs> whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, now look at that verse 37, they were cut to the heart. Literally it means stunned. There was an explosion of emotion and fact blending together in this great condemnatory statement that had come their way. But also they cried out in hope and anticipation, men and brethren, what shall we do? I do not believe conversion is easy. I do not believe becoming a Christian is easy. I think it's a breaking down of the whole psyche of a human being to the point where they feel, I don't know what to do. I don't know who to turn to. Only one that can help me now is the Lord. And I don't believe you can be saved till you feel a deep need for that. But right in the midst of this, you've got to also have an anticipation that you've learned some things about, but you feel it's possible that you can be forgiven. Did you ever meet somebody that felt they couldn't be forgiven? In our home area, that is a common problem with our old veterans that fought in world wars and Vietnam wars and so forth. Because in war, things are done that are horrible. Oh, we'd like to think everything that's done is necessary. But some of the men that come back from those adventures will tell you some of the things done were not necessary. And they were so traumatizing to those men that they couldn't believe they could be saved. I was baptizing an old lady one night, and I will tell you her first name, Siller, S-I-L-L-E-R. We've got some great names down home. I love the names. They're old-timey names. It was a cold January night. I mean freezing. I slid over to her house, and some of our ladies from uh, the Christian Chapel Church had been working with her and teaching her, and they had her converted. They had her ready for baptism but we didn't know how to get to the waters from where we were. And one of the ladies, she was a really small, frail little lady. And one of the ladies told me, she said, Brother Raymond said, come in here in this bathroom. I want, I want to ask you something. I went in there. And there was one of those old-timey claw tubs. That thing was that tall. And set up off the floor, and it was huge. I said, let's fill it full of water. She said, there's no running water. What are you doing with the tub with no running water? So they went out and started drawing water from this old well they had. And the ladies turned the stove on and started heating that water. And we kept pouring that water till we filled that tub up. 
And Siller went and got herself ready. And we went to that little bathroom. But as I walked down the hall, suddenly a man come down some steps, one of those attic steps that went up straight up almost. He threw the door open, he come out, and he was drunk as he could be. By the way, he was one of the most decorated soldiers in World War II from that area. But he'd been a drunk ever since then because of the battle problems that he went through. And he stopped, and Siller stopped, and it was her son, Mal. And she said, Mal, they're going to baptize me. Would you please come and watch? He said, no. No. And he went back up the steps. Siller cried. But I baptized her. Years later, and I tried to talk to Mal a lot, and I began to realize what Mal's problem was. He didn't think he could be forgiven. And one day, I wasn't doing the preaching, another man was. The message got home to him that there was a chance. The anticipation blossomed in his heart. The desire increased. He wanted it with all of his heart. But he wanted the man that baptized his mama to baptize him. That's me. And I went to him. And I buried that old man in the water and come up, tears of joy, crying. I'm crying. Everybody's crying. And then he looked at me and he said, maybe now I won't see the faces. What faces, Mal? The people I killed. And he said, but there's one face I will see till the day I die. I said, what's that one? He said, you remember the night you baptized Mama? I said, yeah. The look of pain in her eyes when I told her no, I would not watch her do that. I said, Mal, someday you're going to see her. And I don't think she'll remember it at all. I think she'll be so happy to have you with her. Are you, are you hearing this? You think we get through this without emotions? I've got to tell you something about forgiveness that's important to this lesson. To receive that forgiveness, you have to be reconciled with God. And it's not just water baptism or even belief or confession or repentance. Those are the things that we're told to do to petition. We call upon God's name. We appeal to his authority. But listen to me. But God has to forgive you. Now when the Bible says we're to be reconciled to God, you need to remember something. Among men, the Bible uses a word, dilasso, that talks about reconciliation. If, if this brother and I were into it over something and we had to fix it between us, I dare say both of us would have to change something. But when you reconcile with God, God does not change. He will never change in the sense that you'll have to. You will come on his terms and you will come to him. You will beseech him by the mercies of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now I want to make sure you understand that. Because I think sometimes we think, well, I'll just walk up there and I'll say I believe and I'll repent and I'll confess and I'll get baptized. And now, buddy, you owe it to me. And it's not like that. We are receiving mercy from the Lord 
God Almighty. While you're there in the book of Psalms, go over to chapter 27 if you don't mind. And it's, it's just interesting how Old Testament people, especially David, they had, this, they had this picture of forgiveness and relationship with God that somehow or another we're missing when we get to the New Testament. And I don't think it's because it's not in the New Testament. It's because we just focus on certain elements of our action. And in Psalms 27 verse 4, One thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, for in the time of trouble... He shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. You know what he's saying? He will receive me. And I can anticipate that he will take me and put me in a good place where he's at. And you've got to desire that. It's one thing to know it. I heard a fellow tell me this one time. He said, well, preacher, he said, uh, it takes the mind a long time to receive what the heart does. I said, you got that backwards. I said, it takes the heart a long time to receive what the mind knows. There's the problem. We know a lot about this book. We, we should be the most joyous people on the planet. We ought to be walking with a bounce in, in our steps as we move toward heaven. We ought to understand that when we learn all these things and feel these things, and I want to go back to Acts 2 for just a minute, there needs to be a knowledge and a feeling that roars through our, our spirit, our soul, of an urgency to respond to what we've learned. Y'all go to a basketball game. Let me ask you a question. Do y'all just sit there and go, well, that was a really pretty three-pointer? I was at a house years ago in a meeting. UK was playing somebody. There was a fast break going. And there was a fella there that did not like sports. He didn't care about sports. He was interested in the weather. And he got up. And he walked over just as they go in with that fast break and turned the station. Everybody in that house started yelling. I remember one old brother said, you just born old. That's your problem. you just born old. Anybody that couldn't be excited when UK's on a fast break, it's, well, anyway. But what I want you to understand is first century church was born in an emotional outburst based on truth. Go back to that verse. When they learned what they had done, they were cut to the heart. Katanuso, the word to prick, to stun. Strong emotion. It's also the same word as used in Acts 4, verses 1 and 2, where it says, As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed at what they taught the people, and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Can I tell you something? People that received the Lord were greatly disturbed. And people that hated the Lord were what? Greatly disturbed. We got this whole hum take it or leave it attitude.
The truth about Jesus leaves that question exploding in our minds. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And some of us are kind of like window shoppers. We kind of know what we want, but we just can't get the courage to walk into the building and buy it. So we just stare through the window. I have preached to some people for years and, and, and just couldn't, couldn't get them to get to that spot where they had enough desire to want to get up and become a Christian. And they knew as much about it as any of us did. But as I went through the, the conversions in the book of Acts, so many times, the same hour of the night, what must I do to be saved? Here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Matter of fact, in Acts 8 there, they both went down in the water and the Bible says at least one of them went away rejoicing. Brother, let me ask you a question. Just, just really a serious question. Someone comes forward to be baptized. I hope you're not one of these churches, but I've been in congregations where half the congregation would get up and leave. If it was done after the assembly, they wouldn't stay and watch it. Not long back, I did a baptism in our Marabone Creek, I know you know where that's at, down in, down in front of Mr. Turner's house. You, maybe you don't, but that young lady over there knows where it's at. And this man was well known in our community. And listen to me, there were Baptists and Methodists and Pentecostals and Church of Christ folks. Everybody come down there to watch that baptism when they heard he was going to be baptized. And they lined up and down the edge of that creek. And some of them in the denominational group, when he come out of that water, they started doing that. And others looked kind of embarrassed like, but they wanted to. Because they were all so happy. I ain't telling you to do that. But I am telling you, you should be happy. This tent meeting should make you happy to try something new. This is not the end all. It's not. We don't do these every Sunday. But when I see people that want to go out on the limb to pursue Christ and, and even obey the gospel, and I see people that will pay a price Maybe their families will turn them out because they've come to Christ. And I've seen it. I've seen people that's willing to walk away from the way they were raised up all their lives, raised up a certain way. And I don't mean bad, but, but not the biblical way. And then when they learn the truth, they're willing to make a total radical change and they do it with joy. I want all of us to have that. But we're going to have to learn that our feelings guided by the truth of the Scripture can become such a powerful combination of motivation in us. Now, no, I wasn't preaching about fire today. But I will tell you this, you can't have the fire unless you have some feelings in it. There's no way to do that. The Lord knows our feelings. He knows the good. He knows the bad. In every conversion I saw in Scripture, 
I could see the guilt and the shame, and I could see the need. I could see anticipation. I could see urgency. In every conversion of Scripture, I saw joy. But I never did once see somebody go, well, that's over with now. Y'all leave me alone. Now you can all just leave me alone now. And when that fire continues on and those people come out and they, they begin to move forward, that energy is in them and that rejoicing is in them and they're glad that they've done this. And as I said at the very beginning of this lesson, they know their name is written in heaven. They, that's just a happy crowd of people to be around. Let me ask you a question. What did you feel? Sometimes at Waterview, of course, we broadcast to the parking lot like you do. And I'll tell the folks now, because I always do a mic check before we start. And somebody, I'll always have somebody out there. I say, listen, if we're broadcasting, when you hit your horn, beep, 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 you'll hear horns hitting all over the parking lot. And I'll say, if you like to point and you want to amen, hit your horn. <laughs> Every now and then you hear beep. Nobody will own up to who did it, but you'll hear one. Enjoy being a Christian. But also make sure you've got the knowledge in place. And let the appropriate emotions flow from that knowledge. One time, and I'll close with this, one time this lady came to a meeting. I was in Nelson County. Chaplain, how have you? Some of you know probably where that's at. And I had some time, so I was running, walking around in the community visiting. and Met a lady. She was out working in her yard. I said, you need to come over. They're, they're having a meeting up the road. She said, who's preaching? I said, some old wild fellow from down near Tennessee is preaching. And she said, is he any good? Well, I, I don't know. I like him. I said, won't you come? She said, no. She said, I get, I get in the spirit. She said, I'll get in the spirit. And she said, if he's any count at all, she said, I'll get to jumping up and start running around in that auditorium. I said, well, they don't do that, do they? She said, no. They don't do that over there. I said, well, why don't you come? And I said, if he's any count at all, and I said, and you get the spirit, then you just go out the front door and circle the building all you want and then come back in. She came. And I met her at the door and she went, oh, you. <laughs> and you know what? I never could get her out of the seat. I did my best to try to preach hard enough to get her to want to get up and go, but I never could get her up out of that seat. I tell you something, folks. If the Holy Spirit's doing that to you, you wouldn't have a choice. You'd have to get up and go. But if you're doing it to yourself, you're kind of controlling that, you see. But also, if you stifle the Spirit, you quench the fire, it's your fault. We've got more reason to have joy, the joy of Christ in us, than any group on this planet because we have the combination of truth and emotion if we want it. Now, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, look, that, my Lord is there. No matter what you've done, He'll forgive it. But He does want you by His Word 
to practice those things that produce this commonality of relationship between all of us, this belief that we have to have in him. And by the way, that faith, it's not just academic knowledge or psychological acceptance, but it is an unqualified trust that no matter what you don't know, he does know it. The confession, the agreement, the repentance, the turning away, the baptism, the burial, and the joy to live that Christian life. And don't let the deadheads drag you down. Don't let them drag you down. No, by the way, I told you something about those ball games. I would embarrass most of you if we went to a ball game together. I would, because I yield for my team. Whose team you are? Think about it. Let's stand up and sing.